What do you love about music? To begin with, everything. Putting on a great show is the most important thing you can do. One great rock show can change the world. Alan Toussaint has written some of the most indelible songs in pop music history, helping expand the musical legacy of his native New Orleans. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. Alan Toussaint joins us for a very special interview and a performance at our Grand Piano. We also talk with the director of the now Oscar-winning documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, I know we've been looking forward to this show. Alan Toussaint, musical legend, sitting with us in the studio, special for both of us, but especially you. You've grown up tinkling the ivories your whole (laughs) career. What was it like having this guy? Uh, Sitting eight feet away from a musical master at the piano, that was a special treat. Some of the greatest songs in New Orleans music history written by this guy, and here he is demonstrating them for us. But first, we've got some music news. I sing because... That is the incredible Darlene Love singing her acceptance speech at the Academy Awards. What a moment. We're on the phone with Morgan Neville, the director of the film 20 Feet from Stardom, which tells the up until now untold stories of some of the music industry's best backing singers, including Love. Morgan, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. Now, did you know Darlene was going to do that? Was that part of them? I mean, you know, it's a jump to even think you're going to win. It's an honor just to be nominated. And then there you are, and she's singing while you stand beside her. I knew she wanted to sing. And, you know, they they scare you when you prepare for it. (laughs) You know, you've got 45 seconds, and if anybody else talks, they're going to play you off. But I figured once she started, once she hit that first line, nobody was going to play her off. (laughs) <laughs> Morgan, what drew you to this subject? What was like the, the light bulb moment where you said, I've got to do a movie on these unsung heroes of, of music? It actually it came together in a way unlike anything else I've ever done, which is one day I got a call from a guy named Gil Friesen, who used to run A&M Records, and he had been in the music industry forever. And he told me a story about going to a Leonard Cohen concert while under the influence of marijuana and staring at the backup singers for the entire show (laughs) and saying to himself, what's their story? And that's intriguing to me. And so before we even decided to make the film, I went to go do research on it, and I couldn't because nothing had ever been written about them. No books, documentaries, even websites, articles. It was kind of unbelievably invisible. Mm -hmm. All I could do was sit down and meet these singers. And I spent, you know, three months doing 50 oral history oral histories with these singers, and instantly I, was, I felt like I'd stumbled across the secret history of pop music. Invisible, what a great word to describe the work 
that these singers do for little or no recognition. And yet in many ways, as, as, they were, as some of them were saying in your documentary, they would be singing the hooks for some of these biggest songs. They were so obviously talented and so obviously had been misused by the industry that I felt outrage and indignation, and I expected them to feel bitter and outraged like I did, but they they weren't. They've all somehow made peace with the lives they have rather than the life they had dreamt of having or that the music industry or society is supposed to tell them they should have because they're so talented. And um, and that was a good lesson. We're talking to Morgan Neville, the director of the now Academy Award-winning film, 20 Feet from Stardom. This is a parable for our time. These women, as talented as they are, all of them screwed over to varying degrees by the music industry, right? At the end, they realize, my life's been richer just for singing. Yeah, absolutely. And a family like the Waters family, who are legendary backup singers who sang on absolutely everything, they said to me, artists come along and they have a hit and we sing with them and they have a three-year career or a five-year career and they vanish. We've been getting paid to sing for half a century and we've raised families and we've had a good life and we get to do what we love to do. And it's actually, in a way, a much saner life if all you really care about is the music because once you want to become an artist, it's not about the music. If you are out there and your name is on that dog on marquee, the pressure is on them. And sometimes that can, that can cause uh, problems in a person's life. Listen to me. I've got dreams. dreams. Dreams to remember. You know, it's interesting that uh, they play this role, and so few of them actually go on to have the name recognition that many of them deserve and are now getting from your movie. What was different about, say, Luther Vandross, David Bowie's backup singer in the 70s? Or Cheryl Crow, who was a backup singer for Michael Jackson for many years before she went on to her own fame. What was different about Vandross and Crow? Ambition. That's it. Mm -hmm. You know, somebody like Luther Vandross, incredible backup singer. The only reason he ever got a record deal was that he was the king of the commercial jingles in the New York market. And he saved up all of his money in the late 70s. And he paid to record his first album himself because no record company would give him a contract. And I feel like most backup singers are so naturally talented, and they generally fall into the music industry or fall into the backup world because they're so good that somebody invites them in. But they've never had to be ambitious about their talent. And so when it comes time for them to try and be a solo star, they're flexing a muscle they've never used before. And I think for most of them, that's really the, the issue. You know, I, they're re-releasing or expanding the release again in theaters this week, which is incredible. But really, the greatest thing about this whole thing, kind of being capped by winning the Oscar, is kind of the writing the wrong that our film talks about. You know, these women were overlooked and had missed opportunities and bad luck. And the film, in some way, has, has rectified a lot of that. Lean on me.
We have been talking to Morgan Neville, the Academy Award-winning director of 20 Feet from Stardom. Morgan, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Sound Opinions, and that's the 1977 number one hit, Southern Nights, performed by Glenn Gamble, but written by our guest this week, Alan Toussaint. The legendary piano man started on his instrument early in life, but quickly worked his way through the New Orleans scene by becoming a session player for legends like Huey Smith and Earl King. Toussaint also formed the production company Sansu and groomed an impressive quartet as the house band, The Meters. In 1973, Greg, he co-founded Sea Saint Studio, which would become a favorite of recording artists, including Dr. John, the Neville Brothers, and even Sir Paul McCartney. You know, Jim, let's not forget Alan Toussaint's songwriting career. I mean, he's written songs like Working in a Coal Mine for Lee Dorsey, and he wrote Fortune Teller, which Robert Plant and Alison Krauss later performed on that Grammy-winning album they did together a few years ago. You know, he was a writer, a producer, an arranger, and then his solo career really took off. He recently celebrated over 60 years of performing with a series of shows at Joe's Pub in New York City, and he documented those shows with a new album called Songbook. So when Alan Toussaint sat down with Jim and me in our studio, I asked him if it took him right back to where he started, just him and a piano. Oh, yes. This just feel like a few days later. Um, <laughs> everything that was happening then is happening now. I'm still trying to learn how to play the piano mm-hmm. uh, a bit better than yesterday. What was that like? Upright piano in your mom's house, right? Age six, I think, right? Yes, yeah, six, six and a half. Uh, yes, uh, you know, at six, if you're six and a half, you're going to stress that six and a half. <laughs> that yeah. half matters. Yeah. <laughs> That's an old guy there. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yes, I wonder about then and... Uh, I walked over to this big piece of furniture, touched it, and it said hello in such a fine way. <laughs> I didn't know what to expect out of such a large piece of furniture, but it was a pleasure. Your parents were both pretty musical, too, right? I mean, they had uh, an interest in music and playing it, listening to it quite a bit, right? That must have seeped in. Yeah, well, my father, before before I was born, he was a weekend tr- trumpet player, played in big bands. And uh, he was never an improviser. He was never a cat. He played first or second chair. And uh, But by the time I came along, uh, I was the third of three children and his and wife. So he had to take a permanent job because music wasn't then what it is now for us, the payrolls. Well, he was a mechanic for the L&N Railroad. He repaired locomotives. And and it was by ear that you were, you didn't really have a teacher, right? I mean, it was kind of more you were teaching yourself listening to music. Well, I first got started. I had about seven, maybe seven or eight lessons later on, but my mother gave up on me because the Boogie Woogies had me. <laughs> Ammons had me, Swanee River Boogie, good heavens, and uh, some blues that I heard late at night and good gospel and hillbilly trills. 
but my mother knew that I was very much interested in the piano because I'd wake up daily for it. I don't rally in giving up on that because I do think students could uh, have both worlds if they stay with it. But I was very impatient as a kid, and, hmm. and she was kind enough to let me go on my own path. much has been made of Professor Longhair's influence, impact on you, that music. Not enough. Mm-hmm. Not enough. So mm-hmm. g- can you give us a little, uh, for, for people who don't know what that music was, can you give us a little of that and then maybe a little of, of how it's echoed in your in one of your songs? Well, it's echoed in my songs, whether you can hear it or not, as for the licks themselves. Mm. But my heart always has some Professor Longhair in it, mm-hmm. in probably everything I do. Fess, as far as I'm concerned, he was like, I, I consider, I says he is our Bach of Rock in New Orleans because he had inventions and some were very slight and he played a lot of rumba and rumba basses, things like that. And he had things early on like, That's the most elementary of Professor Longhair that uh, one could get to. However, as as Fess played on and on, we begin to hear things. That's a la fest because there's a few little notes in there that was added in because you just do that. But uh, that just was like nothing else that was going on at its time. So, Alan, how about a song? I, I think that a, a tune that we really hear the fest uh, influences is uh, it's a New Orleans thing. You were warming up with it. You were kind enough to tell us uh, you'd play anything we wanted to hear. Uh, so that would be a great place to start. Tipatina Anywhere I am There's a bit of Tipatina Anyone from your leans Knows exactly what I mean Anywhere I go Something goes along with me Anywhere I go Something goes along with me 
It's the charm of the city Hey, hey, hey The crescent city in me It's a New Orleans thing It's a New Orleans thing It doesn't leave you just because you leave town No, no We got our own special swing It's a New Orleans thing It's a New Orleans thing from Alan Toussaint, live on Sound Opinions. We'll have more conversation and performance from the New Orleans legend after a break on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Your pretty brown eyes, your wavy hair. I won't go home no more because you're not there. I've got it bad like I told you before. Please come back, my love, and leave me no more. Lipstick traces on a cigarette. Every memory lingers with me yet. I've got it bad, like I told you before. I'm so in love with you. Me no more. Won't you come back home? Won't you come back home? Cause I'm crazy about you, can't do without you. Won't you come back home? Lipstick traces. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Codd, and my partner is Jim DeRogatis, and that's Dr. John with the song Right Place, Wrong Time, produced by our guest this week, Alan Toussaint. Dr. John is just one of many names in the long list of superstar collaborators Alan's worked with. We're talking about folks like Irma Thomas, Lee Dorsey, Huey Smith, The Meters, Patti LaBelle, and many more. Dr. John and Alan both came up together in the New Orleans scene working as session players in studios as teenagers. And during our conversation, I wanted to know more about that experience. It was a wonderful time, and we knew we were in the University of Cosmo. Cosmo owned the studio. It was Cosmo Studio. It was the window to the world to us. It was the window and doorway to the world. We had a wonderful time, and it was the learning process. It was no better place to to learn the skills and crafts of what we were doing, and we were having a wonderful time. And let me tell you, Mac Rabinac was quite a guitarist and still is. Whenever I was there, of course, I was always the pianist and he was the guitarist. I didn't know he was such a fantastic pianist. I said, well, look what he's doing behind my back. <laughs> and he did it so very well. Mm-hmm. I just, uh, well, we're from the same garden. We plants, we flowers out of the same garden. <laughs> a band with uh, Snooks Eglin, right, the uh, great uh, guitarist. By the time you were 17, you were gigging with Earl King, right? I mean, it was uh, quite, a, quite a quick period of time there where you're working in this adult world. Were you at all daunted by this prospect? Did you feel you were ready for these opportunities as they came along? Yes, I felt very much ready for them. For one thing, uh, that band uh, when, with Snook Ziegler, we started when I was 13, and uh, with Neighborhood Guys, and Snook Ziegler was one of them. And he was playing uh, when he was that age, the same as he played when he was 40. Mm-hmm. He was already there. In fact, I first heard him when he was seven years old on a talent <laughs> a talent scout show in New Orleans. And I, uh, I just heard it on the radio. I was a little kid as well. I just couldn't get over this little genius. And from 13 till 17, that was my home. And at 17 is when I was called in to play with Earl King which introduced me to the adult world. Now, you're, you're replacing a guy whose middle name or nickname is Piano. <laughs> so you're, you're stepping into these, some big shoes here, and yet here you are playing Huey Piano Smith's role. You know, how do you go into a gig like that? I never gave that a thought. <laughs> I, for one thing, I was so in love with what I was doing, I couldn't wait to get to any piano and to play whatever was called for on at that time. And... I was going to be playing music that I had studied very dearly, Earl King's music and everyone else's on the scene, but especially Earl being from New Orleans. And I loved Huey's playing. So everything that Huey had played on those recordings, I could play it exactly like him. Not cocky, just uh, grateful and glad that I had the opportunity to play with Earl King, that good music that Huey had set the pace so and set the pattern so well. Oh, girl, 
we mentioned, you know, Professor Longhair, Huey Piano Smith, Fads Domino, all these giants. Huey Piano Smith, was there something distinctive about his playing that jumped out at you when you, when you first heard those records? Yes, he was very inventive. Uh, his touch was very bluesy to it. it. It had a finishing to everything he played. Even when he just played an augment called to Legion. The, when Hughes Smith pressed that, if he pressed that same chord, mm. something, you hear some gravy in it some kind of way. <laughs> uh, he was a marvelous player. And as a writer, uh, with all the songs he came up with later when he started his own career, High Blood Pressure and Rockin' Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Flu and Don't You Just Know It, he was a masterful writer as well. I felt as dearly about playing U.S. Smith as I would have if I was trying to play Rachmaninoff. I'm fascinated about the transition from session player and gigging musician to songwriter and producer because that's the legacy. So many incredible records. We talked about Dr. John earlier, Lady Marmalade, <laughs> you know, uh, by LaBelle, and on and on and on. And then also as the songwriter. Now, how does this kid who's doing pretty good, making a couple of bucks, uh, suddenly start to become, you know, the go-to person for songs and for production in New Orleans? Well, I must say that my very early days of mimicking all of the songs that I heard on the radio, and I mimicked everything because everything I heard, I don't care how remote it seemed at the time, I thought all the piano players out there must know that except me. <laughs> so I had best get to it. And I meant in any genre because I didn't know they were specialists. I thought piano players played everything you heard. I, I thought today they played Greg's Piano Concerto and tomorrow uh, Muddy Blues. But that attitude, that innocent, naive attitude, caused me to to have a very large scope and with equal respect. So it was a natural evolution for me to go on into arranging and writing melodies and if called for to write a song because I had emulated so many songs before till I knew formulas. Even if I wasn't inspired, I could know just that there's a formula you can use. But of course... I, like everyone else, would rather the moments that we were inspired because those are the most precious and sacred and dear moments in your life. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so odd to hear you say the word formula because uh, this new record songbook, I mean, what is there? More than two dozen immortal tracks, three dozen, right? You know, and there's no formula. There's no phoning it in. Tell us about, like, one of your better-known songs and where the inspiration struck. You know, I, I, working in a coal mine. Let's talk about, you know, geez, there's not a rock band in creation hasn't covered that or ripped it off without knowing in the original. Well, I don't consider it a rip-off. Uh, I'm very grateful to everyone who's ever done it, including Devo, which was a, <laughs> which was a very interesting version. You so bet. For, 
But so far as I'm concerned, Devo and I collaborated on something in life. Well, I've been working in a coal mine, going down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to slip down. Working in a coal mine, going down, down. Working in a coal mine, about to slip down. Five o'clock in the morning, I'm up there for the sun. When my work day is over, too tired for having fun. I've been working. I've read your interviews, and it's very inspiring, your attitude about sampling and people uh, taking your work and, and reinterpreting it, recontextualizing it. It's, oh, yes. It's very, because a lot of artists do not have that attitude. Well, I don't know, but I, I won't speak for them. But for me, thank you, guys. Thank you. <laughs> for one thing, some put a different twist on it, and which is very interesting that they would take it and take it somewhere else, like, uh, like Fortune Teller with Robert Plant, the way... Uh, T-Bone Burnett and the bunch did that, put a different twist all together. Went to the fortune teller, had my fortune read. I didn't know what to tell her. I had a dizzy feeling in my head. She took a look at my palm. She said, I saw you feel kind of warm. She looked into a crystal ball. She said, you're in And some folk will do it pretty much close to exactly the way it was. Like Herb Alpert did, did the whipped cream pretty close to the original. Of course, he had his own wonderful flair that, far as I'm concerned, sent it to the moon. So I respect both of those concepts equally. And again, the word is grateful. Mm-hmm. Well, well, working in a coal mine, where did it come from? I have no idea what working in the coal mine come. <laughs> do you remember writing it? Yes, I do. I knew Lee Darcy was on the way because uh, he and Lee Darcy, his whole life was a smile, <laughs> and he said, "Alan, I'm on the way on the phone." And he, I knew it would take him about an hour or so to get there. And a little earlier that day, I had been thinking of of this kind of groove and uh, working in the coal mine, and I remember having it. Three times faster than it was. I was feeling sort of like Sister Rosetta Thorpe used to feel, <laughs> uh, that humping and sanctified kind of feeling. But So working in the coal mine, though it was unrelated to any autobiographical or biographical material uh, person that I knew, I thought it was just right. But it didn't come off. And fortunately, my... Uh, I was going to just dismiss that song because some things when you go into the studio and you try them, they just don't work. And we did the whole first two verses, but when we were going into the third round, it did not go well. So I just finished that and went on to the next songs. But Marshall Seahorn, who was my partner at that time, he said, oh, no, this is too good a song when I had left. And he went in with the engineer and they spliced that part from the (laughs) early part and put it near the end. So I guess uh, uh, one with a keen ear can tell that, oh, that's the very same part that went near the end. But he saved the day, and he saved that song, because it had gone to the trash can for me. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, whoop, about to step down. Working in a coal mine, going down, down, down. Working in a coal mine, whoop, about to slip down. Five o'clock in the morning, 
I'm already up and gone Lord, I'm so tired How long can this go on? Got that working in a coal mine Going down, down, down Working in a coal mine that fanciful story you just told is as good as the fanciful story in the song itself. It's just, what a leap of imagination. See, I want to go home now and, and, and speed up Alan's recording and see what it sounded like three times better. I want to imagine Alan as a hardcore punk. Evo had nothing. It went like that. That's completely wow. different, as opposed to the groove we all know. Give us, give us a couple bars of that. Working in the coal mine, going down, down, down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just feel like you're you're, you're trudging up from underground with the pick on your shoulder, with Thank your you. rhythm. <laughs> Thank you. Were there different approaches, Alan, for different artists as producer? Always different approaches. Yes. With Lee Dawson, uh, like I like I said, it was always point to him each line. You point to him and not here, but there. Hmm. But and he but he was putting on a performance while you were doing that. He wasn't on edge. He was just the luxury of not worrying about it because he knew I wasn't going to let him sink. But there are some artists that uh, you can just give them the song, and they get to know it. For instance, Irma Thomas. I wouldn't. I, once I taught Irma the song, she knew the song very well. Now she would sing it. Exactly like I sang it to her without adding anything to it unless I asked her. Because she really thought, if that's the way you want it, that's the way I'm going to do it. Wow. Yes. Alan, how about one of those songs that you wrote for Irma? Well, I wrote one later that not as many people know. It's called Old Records, uh, if, oh, that, if yeah. that would be all right with you, unless you wanted to hear one that... No, that's a people. beautiful song. The sentiment of that song is... I, I mean, there's no music lover who's not going to hear that as their anthem. It's so good Listening to old records And thinking about you You, 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 you It's so nice Rising slowly through the park Slightly at the dark And thinking about you You, 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 you I was flirting with the hurting, and now I'm certain that you did the right thing, leaving me. But at least when you left, you left so many, many sweet memories, oh yeah, yes you did. Like Old Man River, I keep a ride on the rolling, but it will never be the same without you. No, no, no. Nighttime find me counting diamonds in the sky, 
Then I turn on my stereo With the volume intimately low It's so good Listening to old records And thinking about you And thinking about you Nobody but you It's so nice I feel the soda on ice Thinking about you You, 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 you Memories of you Seem to be my favorite pastime I either can't or I don't want to Get you off of my mind No, no, no Oh, and I'm not afraid To move on to someone new But you're a hard act to follow I just can't stop thinking of you I knew I was flirting with the hurting And now I'm certain That you did the right thing Leaving me But at least when you left You left so many, many Sweet memories, oh yeah Yes you did, baby Sweet, a sweet memory Riding slowly through the park Slightly after dark And thinking about you Sweet memories A fizzing soda on ice Thinking about you Sweet, sweet memories That was Alan Toussaint performing old records here on Sound Opinions. If you want to share your opinions on Alan Toussaint, New Orleans, or anything in the musical world, give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. And while you're leaving us a message, check out videos from this session and all our other interviews at soundopinions.org. Up next, we talk to Alan about the theme song from The Dating Game and writing the most personal song in his catalog. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Fortune teller had my fortune read. I 
didn't know what to tell her I had a dizzy feeling in my head Then she took a look at my bar She said, Sonny, you feel kind of warm She looked into a crystal ball And said, you're in love Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and that is Fortune Teller, performed by the Rolling Stones, but written by our guest this week, Alan Toussaint. Greg, that song has been covered by an endless list of artists, the Hollies, the Who, the Mercy Beats, Felix the Cat, Tony Jackson, the Iguanas, Robert Plant, and Alison Krauss, so many others. We asked Alan if he realized Fortune Teller would be covered by so many different artists. I actually wrote it as a B-side, and I didn't think any more of it. But not that not that you try and not write a song as good as the one before, but since the company, uh, Minute Records, had already thought that that other song was going to be the song, well, uh, they needed, uh, well, I, I needed other songs, and I knew this would go on the other side of that. Would you mind playing a few bars of uh, Fortune Teller for us? feeling in my head Then she took a look at my palm She said, Sonny, you feel kind of warm She looked into her crystal ball And said, you're in love I said, how could that be so? I'm not typing none of the girls I know She said, when the next sun rises, You'll be looking in her eyes I left that in a hurry, looking forward to my big surprise. The next day I discovered that the fortune teller told me a lie. I hurried back down to that woman, as mad as I could be. I said I didn't see anyone, so why'd you make the fool of me? As if it came from up above While looking at the fortune teller I fell in love Now I'm a happy fella I'm married to the fortune teller We happy as we can be And now I'll get my fortune told for free All coming from the last oh, line. That's wonderful. God. Incredible. <laughs> Fortune teller from Alan Toussaint. I, I cannot get enough of this. I could just sit That's here all day. day. <laughs> well, we got to go back to something you mentioned earlier, Alan, because you mentioned whipped cream. And it becomes this huge hit for Herb Albert, the instrumental version and, and the theme for the dating game. TV people may remember that of a certain age. Could you give us like 16 bars of whipped cream?
I'm going to give that to my mom because I remember my, like one of my earliest memories yeah. of watching TV is my mom was addicted to that show. Um, but you write that when you're on leave from the army, right? You're, you're, you're serving in the armed forces and you got a band on the side mm-hmm. and you're like on leave and you put that together, right? Right. Absolutely. How does that work, man? <laughs> well, uh, that's this small band that we had in Arma, it was uh, a side on outside the Arma, actually. We'd play gigs on the weekend. And they they learned that I had written Java. They got the wind that I had written Java. When they heard that I wrote Java, they just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. (laughs) They just laughed. They thought it was a popcorn song, a little jive song. Uh, But I was in charge of the music that they played, and I was writing arrangements, so I wrote about 30 songs in the air of Java. And Whipped Cream was one of them. And Herb Alpert did such a marvelous job. In fact, when months ago when I went to the White House to get the... Arts Medal of Honor. He was one of the recipients, and we talked about that and him doing because he was a recipient as well. And he asked my daughter, "Do you know Naomi Neville?" Mm-hmm. Because I wrote that under that name. <laughs> That's amazing. You started releasing solo records, uh, records under your own name in the seventies, and uh, an amazing hit that Glenn Campbell had with the title song of one of those albums, Southern Nights, which is also a centerpiece of the songbook record. That song is is unique, I think, in your songwriting history because it is so personal. What was it about that song that brought out that sort of side of your personality as a, as a performer? Yes, it was very personal and very real. It was not designed, even from the beginning, to be a song song. But to, it was, uh, I wanted to share a, that part of life. And that was a way of telling that story. And uh, it, it, uh, it had a few things that happened with it that I consider, consider serendipity now. Uh, because for one thing, I, I, I wrote it in F sharp. For some reason, that pentatonic leads you to think F sharp because it's the, all the black keys if you just run your hand across them. That pentatonic feel. And uh, however, that was very high to sing the melody that had come to me to, to tell that story. But because the story was uh, so inspiring, and I really felt it was the kind we would like to have all the time, I really felt that a soft, soft cloud came about this high above my head, (laughs) sincerely. And I I felt caressed. And I I just relived those moments when, when I was a little boy and taking those rides out to the country and with the old folk who spoke Creole and the, and the things that I saw and and smelled and tasted and heard and, and didn't hear. And, and I felt from the beginning of that to the end that I was totally, totally inspired. And, and by it being in F-sharp being too high to sing, uh, 
doing too high for a natural voice, but I, I didn't have the right to move the key even. Hmm. So I sang it through a Leslie speaker to sit it in the trees because <laughs> I felt it, it was, goes along with breeze and treetops. Uh, and I, I didn't feel it walked on the ground at all. Uh, the inspiration didn't feel quite that mundane, you might say. And uh, it was just done on on electric fender rolls, and I, I added an RMI. It was just me playing, no one else playing, except a guy named Tony Arms was beating on an ashtray. There's a little click sound, <laughs> and he's beating on a clear ashtray with a, with a little stick, not even a drumstick. But it was to share that story. And even though I didn't know whether people would be able to understand all the words because of how it was, but it was more important that it be in that sphere than how much I believe that the words could be understood. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRigatis. We're here, here talking with Alan Toussaint. Alan, uh, and, and a beautiful version of that song on Songbook. Could we get a little bit of of it now as you're performing it. Oh, 
Southern Nights by Alan Toussaint wraps up this incredible record, A History Lesson, Alan, <laughs> uh, songbook. It's been a complete honor having you on Sound Opinions. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. It's a great place to be. To check out videos from this session with Alan Toussaint or to listen to any show we've ever done, visit soundopinions.org. Greg, what's on the show next week? Jim, next week we've got Mike Watt on the show, the great bassist of the Minutemen, whose double nickels on the dime was recorded 30 years ago next month. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Mary Gaffney and Andrew Gill helped us record Alan Toussaint. Sound Opinions is produced by Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, Anthony Martinez, and our intern, Jake Smith. Operator. Could you help me place this call? See the number on the matchbook is old and faded. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Jazz from Oak Park. My question is this. If that song from Frozen is so lame, and it certainly is, why did you waste 15 seconds of your show playing it? Throw it in the garbage can. Thank you. Hi, this is Kate from Chicago, and I was just listening to your guys' conversation about the Academy Award song. I'm a teacher, and my kids are obsessed with that song, and it is phenomenal. Thank you. Hi, I'm Alicia Sibio. I live in Las Vegas, Nevada. Um, when I was 17 years old and a senior in high school, I went to see Sly and the Family Stone at the old convention center. We waited almost two and a half hours for Sly and the Family Stone to show up. It was early spring of 1970, and I was so excited to see them, and I dressed especially great so that I could go to this concert and they showed up late and then when they got there they were obviously all stoned and they never even apologized they just said you know sorry uh, we were getting effing high and um, that's the way it is and if you want to stick around and see us great if you don't that's okay too and Sly laughed he thought that was very funny and and of course at the time it was 1969-1970 was the era and Everybody did stick around. I mean, we already bought the tickets, which I might add were only $3.50. But 
<laughs> just the fact that they were almost three hours late for a show that they were should have done because they were getting high. You know, now I think it's terrible, but then it seemed to be really okay. And I was, and still am, a huge Fly in the Family Stone fan. Hi, my name is Susan. What an awesome, awesome group Sly and the Family Stone were. They were so colorful, and I remember them so vividly. I was actually living in Chicago and on my way to Grant Park when I heard on the radio what was going on, and I turned around. I was so sad that I didn't get to see them perform, but they will always remain in my heart as probably one of the best groups, if not the best group of that era. Thank you so much for that program. Tom from Deer Park, and I have a message for Cynthia and Jerry. I grew up in the little white suburbs of Madison, Wisconsin. I loved Sly and the Family Stone, the multiracial thing, the multi-gender, and they all sang. So I went to see Sly and the Family Stone at the Dane County Coliseum in Madison, Wisconsin. Sly and the Family Stone came on very late, played for about 45 minutes. Then Sly said, F it. And they all walked off the stage. Maybe as Cynthia said, it was in their contract. I wrote about the experience in my high school composition class and included Sly's last words from the show. I received a very poor grade with the note, unnecessary language. Still love flying the family stone. Thanks for letting me know about hire. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.